The following talk was given at the Insight Meditation Center in Redwood City, California. Please visit our website at audiodharma.org. So in the meditation this morning, exploring bodily experience and mental experience, um, partly I, I begin this way or talk about the, you know, what, what begins to be revealed uh, as our mindfulness gets more continuous. Um, uh, I, I emphasize the body, the physical experience, and how we can see uh, our mind in relationship to our physical experience because that's a, a very, it's one of the easiest ways to begin to understand what our mental processes are and how they work, to see them in contrast or in, in contradistinction to our physical processes. So we, we, we can see the relationships, for instance, you know, the physical hardness, uh, a strong uh, physical hardness may be experienced as unpleasant and then we, we react to that unpleasantness. Um, there's also these same interrelationships happening between things that arise in our minds, like, you know, we have a thought that arises, and uh, our ideas, our opinions about that thought may be pleasant or unpleasant, and then we react to that. Um, And so there's also that whole realm. It's not just that our, our mind responds and reacts to the physical world, it also reacts and responds to the, to the mental experiences. But it's often easiest to begin this exploration, to see this distinction in the, uh, in the terrain of the physical. And so just a, a couple of pieces there. Um, it's also helpful to uh, recognize this distinction around physical and mental and one piece I didn't bring into the meditation um, is that our physical experience is expressed just in this very simple elemental experience. You know, the pressure, pulsing, tingling, vibration, coolness, heat. That's what our, our, uh, our body, uh, information the body gives our mind, basically. That simplicity. And our minds put together through a process of perception this kind of image of our body or a sense of our body as a thing uh, the sense of our hand as a hand you know we often relate to our body through our concepts not through the direct experience and so you know, sometimes I'll ask, I'll, in a guided meditation, I'll ask people, so what's your, what are you experiencing right now? And they may say, you know, what's, what's your physical experience right now? And they may say, well, I'm feeling my shoulder. You can't really feel shoulder. Shoulder's an idea. You can feel pressure, hardness, uh, pulling, aching in an area of the body that your mind recognizes as shoulder. There's a location process in the mind that creates the idea of a place in space. And then there's the concept of shoulder that gets put in. So much of the way we relate to our experience, our physical experience and our mental experience, but again, this can be easiest to see in the realm of the body, 
is not through the direct experience, but through some idea we have about that experience. And so as we begin to get more uh, familiar with the actual experience of the body, we can begin to see that our reactivity is potentially more related to our ideas about things than it is to the actual experience. So it begins to take us again into just the actuality of what is happening and curiosity about the actuality of what is happening. As I said at the the end of the guided meditation, you know, our job in our meditation, Sayadaw says, the only thing you need to do is remind yourself to be aware. You know, that's that's all of the doing that we do. and so all of this exploration, you know, the exploration I, I made today around looking more closely at our experience and uh, seeing the interconnections that happen, noticing how, um, how a bodily sensation can result in uh, a mental response to that. That's, um, that's more to be recognized through that simple settling back. I talked, I think, the other day about being a naturalist or being just an observer in the world. I think I said this over the weekend, you know. um, Our stance as a meditator in this practice is really one of being a naturalist. We are observing the human experience from the inside, not interfering, and also not digging, not trying to figure out, not trying to, you know, uh, pull things apart. You know, a naturalist can go out into nature and spend a long time watching a tree grow and then understanding something about the nature of how that kind of tree grows. Another kind of naturalist might go out into nature, cut the tree down, and then take that tree in, you know, grind up some of the particles of that tree, put it into a machine in the lab, and then understand something about the tree. So, you know, we can do it, we can do it from both sides, you know, the, the understanding of our world. We can get in there and figure out. And, but what I'm suggesting is in this form of practice, we're doing the former. We're not doing the interfering kind where we're cutting things down and pulling them apart. We're settling back and patiently watching nature unfold and seeing what learning arises from that perspective. So it's, a pa- it's, it's patience. But, the, but the, the mind does put together. The mind understands. Uh, we don't have to figure things out, actually. It's, uh, yeah, our minds have a natural capacity to put things together and to make connections and to understand. Again, we, we, you know, we can see this in a, in a baby. You know, the baby doesn't have the information to figure things out, but they have the processes, the natural ability, the capacity to make connections and understand what happens. We have that capacity. And so that's what we're trying to tap into here is a non-interfering form of observation that allows understanding to grow and to happen naturally. So that also takes a trust, a trust that uh, the process that we're engaged in is valuable. And we can see that. I think think at least for me, um, 
when I first got that instruction, you know, when I first heard this instruction about, you know, just settle back and, and watch your anger, you know, it's like, huh, what good is that going to do? You know, isn't that just going to make me more angry? And, you know, why would that have any benefit at all? But I was willing to trust the source. So I was willing to borrow. I was borrowing trust. I was willing to trust the source. I'd read this book and a friend had given me the book and said, hey, I found this really useful. Why don't you see, try this? And uh, I was willing to trust both my friend and the book and play with it and see, okay, what happens if I do take that non-interfering stance? with anger. And it was not very long, it was only a matter of a few weeks before I understood myself why it's valuable and began to understand something about my own mind. Not because I was trying to figure it out, but just because I was observing. So the, uh, it does take a trust and we may have to borrow that trust or that confidence uh, initially, um, but it actually doesn't take too long. It, you know, when I first started practicing, I would say, in retrospect, as I look back on my practice, um, when I first started practicing, I was in the Peace Corps. I was in the middle of the South Pacific. I had no access to Dharma teachers. Somebody sent me this book. That was all, all I had. I, I had an occasional internet connection where I could email my friend a question, and she would c- take my question to Gill, and a few weeks later, I'd get a response back. <laughs> so that was kind of my, you know, I didn't have a lot. I didn't have a lot of, uh, of guidance. And so, um, you know, I, I just was, was watching and just observing my experience. And in retrospect, uh, not having a lot of instructions, what my mind that the practice my mind did was very much this style that Saito Utejaniya teaches. It's kind of, it can be a very natural style. It's just kind of like, a, you know, settle back and watch what the mind does. And in that, uh, in that process, I began to understand for myself the value of this simple observation. How it actually benefits benefits us to watch, witness, and learn. And so the acronym that I moved to for this practice, RELAX, recognize, it's not an acronym, it doesn't spell anything. (laughs) RELAX, recognize awareness, receive experience, allow, and learn. It's, uh, It's very simple. This, the very simplicity of it asks us to trust that it, it moves us in a direction of freedom. So the floor is yours. Uh, I'm going to record this. <laughs> um, I think so much of our reactivity is actually born... It, it's it's coming out of like two threads. There's two uh, things going on in our mind that are kind of colliding, and so when we look at our reactivity, we can we can sometimes begin to recognize that there's a thread in that reactivity back to I'd like to be healthy. I'd like to be happy. I'd like to be safe. I'd like to be at ease. 
we, if we look at pretty much any reactivity, anger, fear, frustration, a confusion, wanting, there's a thread there that is leading, that, that, is, that is kind of motivated for, at the deeper level from want to be, you know, the, the, this, this wish to be happy and safe and well and healthy and at ease. That wish itself is metta. It's a natural human wish. You know, that, that this, this, this wish for ourselves to be healthy and happy and safe and our, our, our friends and families and other people to be, it's a natural wish. It's, it, what, it's part of what makes us human. It's part of what makes uh, us not, like, you know, completely insane in the world. It's pretty insane out there, but, you know, I'm kind of amazed. I was, I was in the grocery store the other day I was walking through the grocery store and I was seeing all the stuff and I'm like, wow, you know, how many people did it take to get the stuff in this store? And, you know, wow, look, you know, I can come in this store and buy milk. And, you know, that came from a cow and somebody actually has the, the, the cow and somebody's milking that cow and there's somebody that puts that milk into a truck and delivers it to somebody else who puts it into a carton and oh my, look, it's like, wow. We're taking care of each other. And it's like, it's amazing. I can walk through a grocery store and feel comfortable and taken care of by the world, basically. It was quite an interesting reflection to see, you know, it's like that's part of what makes the world human, that we actually do at a very deep level, we're connected and we do want to connect. And there are definitely places this gets messed up, but, you know, there's a lot of ways we can see how that connectivity works. And so that, that wish for well-being, for happiness, is a natural wish. So, th- so that's there. And if we look at our reactivity, we can, we can sometimes find, we can sometimes see or just check in, maybe ask the question, you know, what's this, what's this reactivity? What's the purpose of this reactivity? Why is it here? What's it serving? What purpose is it serving? And so fear, you know, the purpose it's serving may be to protect me from, from, from vulnerability or um, something like that. So we may be able to touch into the the meta-wish that lies underneath the reactivity. Then the, the other thread, the reason partly why we react, is because uh, that wish for well-being, health, happiness, safety, is coming into contact with the uh, truth in this world that things are impermanent, they're unreliable, and they are often out of control. And um, this uh, truth is, you know, so, so we want to be happy, healthy, and safe, and yet part of our system recognizes unreliable, impermanent, out of control. These two collide and create the various forms of reactivity. That's kind of my understanding. I've seen over and over again when I look at my reactivity and begin to just spend the time with it and observe it, Almost always, I can find those two threads. You know, what is it? What is the you know? What is the wish for for happy? What is the meta side of it? And what truth is being reacted to? So, for myself, around you know, 
the issues around body and aging and going to the gym. You know, I go to the gym, I exercise, and, you know, I do that stuff. And, and you know, there are times when I just, like, I don't like going to the gym, you know? It's like, it's not pleasant. I don't, I don't enjoy it. So it kind of have to, I kind of have to remind myself of the benefits of going to the gym. And I have to, re, you know, remind myself of all of that. Um, um, but there are definitely times where I, I like, you know, I don't go to the gym. You know, it's like, it, it takes a while. And, and, I mean, it, it, it's like, it takes a while for the consequences of that to be felt. And when I recognize that, it's like, oh, okay, you know, so, so there's this reaction, a little bit of frustration. And it's just like this, you know, why is it that I can't just go to the gym for a week, get myself in shape and have it be done, you know? <laughs> so it's like the mind is reacting to this truth of impermanence. You know, this is the way the body is, that you do, you, 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 it's like this continual need. We have to keep, you know, it's unreliable. So it's the, the impact of the, of the uh, exercise, it, it lasts for a little while and then it fades, you know. So it's not, we, can't, we can't just do it once and be done with it. That's the truth. You know, that is, that's just the way things are. There's impermanence, unreliable, out of control. And that reactivity, that subtle frustration of, oh, Jim again, you know, is partly related to these two things. I want to feel happy. I want to feel healthy. And there's this frustration around the, the truth that it has to keep going, you know. I can't just do it once and rely on it. So, so there's the, when we have reactivity... There's usually both sides, and they're like coming into conflict. They're, they're hitting up against each other. We want to be happy, healthy, and safe, and yet there's unreliable, out of control, impermanent. What, what sometimes happens with that as we begin to explore uh, in our mindfulness and recognize, I mean, I've heard this from people, um, as we begin to learn these, these understandings about impermanent, unreliable, I've heard people say something like, you know, you know, I'm experiencing this this decay of the body and, you know, I I, I know that it's impermanent and, and I shouldn't want, you know, I shouldn't want to, to to feel good. That's a misunderstanding. So that's a kind of a taking the idea of impermanence and applying it to, you know, it's, it's, it's almost like if we, if, we, if we understand or recognize or can open to the truth of impermanence, unreliable, out of control, some part of our mind says, well, if I can open to that, then I shouldn't want to be happy, healthy, or... And so that, that there's a kind of a conflict there. Um, and what I see is that they're both, they're both valid, both sides of that are valid. And our heart needs to stretch to hold both that wish for well-being and the truth that, yeah, and things are unreliable. They don't negate each other. The truth of impermanent, unreliable, out of control doesn't negate that wish. And, it, and if we're kind of taking that truth and kind of trying to repress that, wish for well-being and happiness will end up suffering. 
And so there's this interesting middle way, you know, the Buddha taught the middle way, this interesting middle way where we begin to open to both the truth of the way things are and the wish, the human wish for happiness. And that's that place in the middle where we can see, oh, the twinge and the wish for, yeah, need to take care. It doesn't have to move to the frustration around the have to keep doing this over and over again. And so that that exploration of those, um, so whenever there's reactivity, you know, actually when I first started being, paying attention to my reactivity, I thought it was wholly bad. You know, it's like this thing is like, a cancer, you know, this anger, you know, what I need to do is to get a scalpel and to cut the whole thing out and then throw it away. You know, it's like that is just wholly bad. But what I've seen uh, more as uh, I begin to explore, and, and rather than having the idea that that's bad, mindfulness is about getting rid of it, allowing a container in which that thing can be seen, that non-judgmental, it's like, oh, the human experience of anger. What begins to be seen is that as the, as the tentacles of the tightness and the constriction of the anger loosen, it begins to point us to the wish to be safe, the wish to be happy, and the truth of unreliable. And so that... that uh, Reactivity, in a very real sense, is a pointer to deeper understanding. If we just try to cut it out and get rid of it, actually, it's not going to work because that deeper, that deeper understanding or that deeper wish for well-being is not going to go. You know, it's like the the that, that that's a it's 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 deeply in our system. You know, it's not it's not going to just be willing to be excised. Uh, by that, you know, process. And it's going to recognize, no, you know. And this is part of what I like to explore. It's like, whenever there's reactivity, it's like, respect it. It's pointing to something. It's like a signal for you to understand something deeper. It's a misunderstanding. There's a, there's a, there's a misunderstanding in there, uh, a confusion in there about the nature of that wish for happiness and the nature of the truth of impermanent, unreliable, and out of control. You know, our, our minds think either I should be able to be happy in the way I want to or uh, these truths are just wrong. <laughs> you know, that's just wrong. And so our, 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 there's this misunderstanding about the nature of these and also the possibility that our heart can hold both at the same time and hold that paradox. It's actually, there's a paradox there that our heart can hold. And there's a, a peace and an ease that comes with that, holding that paradox. And so there's that, you know, any, any of our um, reactivity, my sense is, my, my, I, I'm, I'm almost ready to say whenever there's reactivity, it does have these threads back to something really beautiful and something really wise. And we just need to be curious enough about where the mind has misunderstood. And as that understanding happens, the misunderstanding releases and we move into that, holding that paradox. Hmm, I'm going to record this.
<laughs> it's so interesting, you know, it's like my mind recognizes in the, it's like, oh, it's like a whole little world of Dharma is born in my mind. It's like, oh, that's what I'm going to say. And it's like, okay, let me record that. Now, if I can remember it. Um, so, uh, we were talking about... <laughs> the blissful beats and the, the landscape that's born. Um. <laughs> yeah, this sometimes happens too. Let me just take a moment. You mentioned um, that it happens so fast that you're not seeing. You're not seeing what it is. And, you know, almost by definition, I'd say, whenever the mind gets... When we're practicing mindfulness... um, in concentration, you know, if you're really with the breath, if you're really with the breath, it's very, it can be very easy to miss something because your, your, your agenda is to be with the breath. And, uh, and so you're, you, you may not notice some little thing that comes in and, and takes you out. But, I mean, and that's, that's essentially what happens. And when we're practicing mindfulness and the mind wanders, it's because we haven't noticed something. It's often the, the, the way that the mind wanders um, is, you know, we're, we're, we're noticing things, we are aware of things, and the attention, so I've been talking about following the attention, following the awareness, um, the attention at some point shifts to something else, and we may have a subtle agenda that, oh, I'm paying attention to this, and so the idea that this is what I'm paying attention to, but the mind has other ideas, and it has picked up on maybe the sound of a motorcycle outside or uh, a twinge in the body, and the, the attention has picked up on something, and our uh, conscious awareness hasn't recognized that. And so there's something we've missed. When the, mind, when the mind wanders, we've missed some shift of attention. And, uh, you know, it's like, uh, we can we can start to be curious about that, and often it's just in retrospect. It's kind of like, wow, you know, I thought I was right there, and here I am thinking. Um, and so we can begin to be curious about what are we missing. Uh, what I have found for myself is, especially as the practice moves, I mean, initially what we're missing is often that we've gotten caught or stuck by something, you know, that, that, you know, we're paying attention and then there's this, this, uh, the stickiness of a thought that arises around something. It's like, oh, I forgot to do that. Oh, the mind will go out. So initially it's, we miss that there's a reaction. As the practice gets stronger, what we miss are things that are subtler. Often what we're missing are things that are subtler than our, than we're familiar with paying attention to. Um, and, and so, uh, you know, especially as the mind gets more concentrated, it's, it's like the, the mindfulness and the, the mindfulness is paying attention to objects. You know, we've got these, these two things going. We've got the mindfulness and the objects, the kinds of experiences it's paying attention to. 
And what seems to happen, especially, you know, you're paying attention to something like the breath. You're, you're noticing the experience of the sensations of the breath. And uh, for a while, there's a kind of a, a cor- cor- correspondence between these two. You, there's a, a kind of uh, familiarity. You're paying attention to these sensations and you, you're familiar with those and you're right there with them. What seems to happen as the mindfulness gets stronger and more continuous is something about that process gets interested in subtler experience. And so it's like the mindfulness shifts down to being curious about quieter, subtler experience. And our agenda is still up here with, oh, this is what I'm paying attention to. And so while the mindfulness is actually interested in something else, that's, that can be where we lose awareness. And so that, that movement... Um, of the mind kind of losing awareness as it gets more concentrated, uh, that's a very common pattern. And what we can begin to be curious about is, oh, there's something new unfolding here that I'm not quite, I mean, I don't, it's like often it's an unknown. It's, it's something we're not familiar with. It's something we haven't consciously met before in that settling process. And, and so the, the mindfulness is kind of seeking that unfamiliar, subtler experience. And our conscious mind being unfamiliar with being with, uh, un, uh, you know, it, the, the mind, we're, we're not so um, uh, comfortable with being with unfamiliar experience. And so that's where the mind goes out. So if we can be curious about, oh, you know, okay, so especially when the mind starts to wander after it's been settled for a while, it's often an indication that there's something new happening that is kind of asking to be received. And we may not even know what it is. So this is really where this kind of practice, I think, is helpful because if we are always choosing what we're paying attention to, we miss uh, unfamiliar experience. You know, if, if, there's, if there's something happening that we've never experienced before, we're not going to be able to direct attention to that. And so we have to be ready to receive. And this is, my understanding is, this is the way freedom will happen. I mean, we have no clue what freedom is like. We have no clue what it means to really release into non-greed, non-aversion, non-delusion. And... We have to be available and receptive to know that. And so the, these moments when the mind wanders like that, it's like when, at this point, for me, it's like, oh, the mind wandered again. Oh, something new's happening. Okay, can, something that was missed. Can I, can I settle back, you know, just start again? You know, the relax so that you can just start again, of course. And, um, and then, you know, and then just be curious. It's like, okay, there's something like it's, it's, it's like the judgment is is um, uh, believe, it, it, the judgment is in reaction to I should be able to control I should be able to know everything and we can't and so as we <clears throat> as we begin to open to that truth and and just receive that judgment begins to to disappear. And we just like, oh, well, missed it again. Oh, maybe I can try again. So, um, thing else you said, um, th- I, this, isn't ex- this isn't what you were pointing to so much, but it, 
it, it is something that I think is useful to, uh, to offer, to share. And that is that notion of the reactivity happening really quickly. Um, you know, the, this happens in daily life. I mean, we go immediately from seeing something to being all lost in a, in a storm about it. It's, it's so fast that we can have that attitude or that belief that, well, maybe I could do this in meditation, but in the midst of, you know, being in the kitchen and doing all this, there's no way I could see that. We might have that belief. And again, you know, in my own practice, I've seen the possibility for witnessing the birth of, like, like the movement, the intention towards anger, you know, seeing a thought arise. I mean, not even trying to be mindful, but just cultivating over time, right, I'm going to wake up whenever I'm noticing anger. That's, that's going to be my daily life practice for a little while because I'm seeing anger is like out of control in my, my life. So I'm going to be curious. Whenever anger arises, that's what I'm going to watch. This was my very first mindfulness practice in daily life watching anger in that way. And I was just curious about the anger. And at one point, um, I was in my kitchen. I was chopping vegetables and or chopping an apple. And as I cut the apple, I saw a, a thought, a memory of being with a person I was angry with at a fruit stand and, and noticed the connection between what I was doing and the thought arising. And then noticed that the mind was kind of wanting. It was like inclining it wasn't there. It wasn't angry in that moment. I could see. I mean, this, and this was all, you know, this is in the midst of, of daily life. This is just doing normal things in the kitchen and not saying, oh, I'm going to be mindful right now. It's just being receptive. And I was chopping that vegetable. I saw that thought. And I recognized in that moment, not angry, but boy, the mind sure wants to think thoughts to get angry. The mind sure wants to go there. Um, but I had been paying attention to anger and knew from the inside that anger hurt. And this, again, this all happened in the space of a split second. In, in the recognizing mind wanting to get angry, the mind also understood in that moment, that way lies suffering. That way lies pain for this being in this moment. And the mind let it go like it would let go of touching a hot pot on the stove. It wasn't that I had to do it. And this just, this just, you know, in daily life, this kind of thing is possible. This happened in the first three months of my practice, just through this curiosity of, of you know, watching, watching anger. I had the benefit, in a way, of being... Um, I had hit bottom. I felt like I'd hit bottom and nothing, nothing I had tried. I had tried so many different things to deal with my life and felt like, you know, nothing, nothing is going to work. And then my friend sent me this book and it's like, well, you know, I don't see how it's going to work, but I'm willing to try because nothing else has worked. And so I had the benefit in a way of feeling like there was no option other than trying to be attentive to what was going on. And so I, I, even though I didn't understand how it was going to work, I was motivated. And so, um, you know, I often talk about in daily life, if there's a pattern that you, uh, 
are interested in understanding, just kind of set, you know, make, find, find something that you're really curious about understanding because the motivation or the curiosity, the interest, and not to get rid of it again, but to kind of understand that, uh, that kind of complex and how it touches all of these other pieces of our life, the, the love and the, and the, the truth. Um, if there's something that you can be curious about, that will increase the, the, the motivation, increase the willingness, increase the energy towards the practice. And, and that's really where it will unfold, is when there is that kind of sense of interest and commitment. If we're just trying to do it with an act of will, that, that takes... Um, you know, the act of will takes a certain amount of mind space. <laughs> it's like, I'm going to do this, I'm going to do this. And in that kind of, I'm going to do this, there's less room for receiving and curiosity. So the, if there's something that you're really interested in understanding in your daily life, that's a good avenue for exploration. And it's way more possible than you can imagine. It is, it's amazing what can be seen, even in daily life. Even in daily life. We can see way more than we, you know. So, so if there's the belief of, oh, not possible to see this in daily life, like, don't believe that thought. It's like, that thought is there. It will come up. But, you know, it's like, okay, set that aside. And maybe you can borrow my trust. Maybe you can borrow my confidence. <laughs> 